Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. On this episode, we discuss Knives Out. Written and directed by Ryan Johnson, released in 2019 on a budget of $40 million, this film had a global box office of $311 million. What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to the show. I'm Anthony. And this is James, and we're talking about Knives Out, which is one of the best murder mystery whodunit films ever made, in my opinion. And it's one of my favorite movies the last decade. It was an amazing cinema experience, I think, if you went to theaters and see this. And I know a lot of people have uh, mixed feelings about Ryan Johnson as a filmmaker because of his Star Wars movie, but I think he's great in every movie he's made. I mean, Looper's fantastic. Brick is great. Brothers, Brothers Bloom is really good. And Knives Out is easily his best film. And they don't really make movies like this anymore. Kenneth Branagh did Murder on the Orient Express a couple of years before this. And otherwise, I can't really think of any modern whodunit murder mysteries that are just like fun, full of twists, and um, trying to guess who, who's the culprit. And it's something that was very popular like in the 50s and 60s. And then uh, I think the most famous one for us our age is Clue, which is a great one. And I think it was just so refreshing to see this classical kind of genre brought into a contemporary storytelling environment and it was so much fun yeah and there's a difference between like murder mystery opposed to like a whodunit and a whodunit it's like an ensemble cast of multiple potential villains that we don't know we're spending the the entire film trying to figure out who it is versus like a murder mystery like gone girl that's a murder mystery but yeah. kind of not technically but not. I, and i would say who done it everyone has to be in the area yeah like the murder on the yeah. orient express they're on a train like all the Agatha Christie novels, they're like in one environment. Oh, actually, you know what a modern version of this is? Is the Office episode where it's the murder mystery when they all think they're going to go out of business. Yeah, and they're all doing the, the duel at the end. Yeah. That's a great There's one. There's a murder on the Mississippi. <laughs> and just to give you a heads up, we're going to spoil this movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, you might want to check it out before we talk about this because this movie has some really crazy twists and we don't want to ruin it for any of you fans who haven't seen the film yet. But we're going to go right into it. Yeah, so spoilers are abound at this point. Yeah, and the, the twists are what make this movie great because Ryan Johnson came up with a way of telling a murder mystery by showing you how the person dies in the opening of the movie. The first act of the movie, we see how Harlan Thrombey dies by slitting his own throat. Before we continue, if you want to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the best way to do that is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. You get perks like personalized messages, personalized videos, our podcast schedules for upcoming episodes, and top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast, and all patrons are also entered to automatic contests every month. Head on over to RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com to check out all of our sources of content, our merch, our custom movie posters, and to become a patron today. Yeah, he, the great thing about this is, like you said, he tells us up front how Harlan dies multiple times. And then at the end of the first act, he shows us how Harlan dies. And, and he constantly tells you during the film that the murder was suicide. The death was suicide. They say it and reiterate it. The evidence proves that it was suicide. So it's kind of, but the, the thing about it is, even though we know how Harlan died, we know he slit his own throat, we think that um, that Martha is responsible by accident. By accidentally giving him an overdose of morphine. But there's still this mystery about this situation and about the death and all these, the heirs of Harlan's estate seem to all have some sort of motivation for wanting to take him out. And then we have the mystery hiring of Benoit Blanc, the world's greatest detective. From is he from Louisiana? It sounds like somewhere south. I can't remember. I believe he's from Kentucky. No, I think he's from Kansas. Yeah, Ransom Something just like says uh, 
CSI KFC. <laughs> <laughs> Enough of your Kentucky drawl. <laughs> and uh, the th and the thing is that with the killing, that's not what Benoit's looking for. He's looking for the reason behind the suicide because he knows that it's a straight up suicide because all the evidence is like there's no way anyone who's even um, in the room. Marta, obviously, she was at the doorway. That's why she got that little droplet of blood on her shoe because as Lakeith Stanfield's character, the detective, points out, the blood splatter, any fans of Dexter would know this. <laughs> <laughs> the blood splatter was uninterrupted, which means that there was no one near him because if, if, if someone slits their own throat, that's the blood sprays everywhere. It will go pretty far, especially with the the strength of the carotid artery. How strong that pumps, like that would spray. And so the fact that no none of those droplets were interrupted means that he clearly did kill himself, and no one else was in the room. So Benoit understands this is how he died, but he's trying to find out why he killed himself. Yeah, exactly. Because there's so many characters in this film that are so suspicious. And just to talk about the cast, the for a ensemble minute, cast, it's man, stacked. It, it might be the best cast. I've ever seen in my life. It's up there. I mean, you got Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Anna de Armas, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, who I hadn't seen in years besides Django, uh, Tony Colletti, Lakeith Stanfield, Christopher Plummer, Catherine Langford. Um, we got Frank Oz has a couple scenes too. So the cast is incredible. The writing is incredible. This is such a clever story. It's a really clever script. It's full of like twists, of course, but a ton of foreshadow throughout this entire story too. It, it's one of those movies that demands a second and third viewing. Yeah, and the ensemble is a bunch of leading actors, a bunch nominated for Oscars, and it's insane that he assembled this cast, and it's because the script is so good. Yeah, You know, actors, no matter, even if the role isn't a leading role, if the script's great, they're clearly going to want to do it, hence this cast, and I think this was really a breakout for Anna de Armas, because yes, yeah, she was in Blade Runner 2049, but she had a minimal role in that, and she didn't have much of a character arc. She just played a, a, a program that was designed to be a romantic partner to someone uh, digitally, and that was her character. But with this film, she is the centerpiece of the movie, even though Benoit, you know, is the, you could say, the lead of the movie, and the franchise is going to revolve around his character. But uh, Marta is the the lead in the heart of this story. Absolutely. And I want to talk about the cinematography for a little bit, if that's cool with you, because Let's talk. I, I love cinematography, exceptional bro. Exceptional in this movie. The the amount of detail in every single shot, besides cinematography, like props and production design, it's in, it's insane. Like whoever the prop master was on this film, that person deserves a yeah. raise. The production designer deserves a raise. All the little raise. trinkets and knickknacks. It's and amazing. The little antiques. And um, the cinematographer Stephen Yedlin is an. This film is absolutely marvelous. It's one of the best looking films I've seen in recent years, and. You wouldn't believe it. He, this film they shot on digital. It looks like film the way he shot this. And he's a really talented cinematographer. And he's really developed his own methods using mathematics and who knows what and, and just tons of experience of trying to, as best as he can, replicate film on digital formatting to the point where it's almost indecipherable. And he does this things, these little things that are uh, impossible to avoid in film, like little shutter uh, taps. And then also he's able to create glow from bright and warm lights that actually like kind of creates a halo effect on film that you can't avoid yeah the thing with film is it has that's a good way to describe it it has this glowing effect even if you look at a photo a film photo on your phone or on a computer uh, the thing what I, that i love about film even film photography is it, it has you ha you can see it uh, it has this three-dimensionality to it you can see that it's it's not just a, a, a flat image, even if it's on a computer screen or a phone screen. And the 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 light, the highs and, and highlights, they glow. That's what I think. That's what's so magical magical about film. But 
the and Ryan Johnson is actually a big advocate of film. He's he's he was actually involved in that that group of filmmakers. There was like Martin Scorsese, Tarantino, Chris Nolan, and they made that deal with Kodak to um, only shoot on film with Kodak Film to keep Kodak afloat. And so he's always been against digital, but he actually um, shot this movie on digital because when they got to the house, he realized that there was so much um, wealth of similar. There, there was so much great imagery in terms of what you saw out the windows of the house because it, it was shot around Boston, so in New England, and it's really beautiful nature-wise there. If you guys haven't don't aren't aware, it's a really beautiful place. And so he wanted to, he wanted to be able to because if you shoot on film, you, you you have to blow out the windows if you're going to use the light pouring in from windows. That's why if you see a movie or TV show, oftentimes the windows will be completely blown out and super bright. You can't even see anything. That's because it's actually just a, a bunch of lights diffused in front of the window to act as sunlight. But what Ryan Johnson wanted to do with this film, he's like, I want to be able to see what's in the house and see what's outside the windows. Yeah, it's called dynamic range. Yeah. Uh, film cameras can't really operate with high dynamic range where you can have you can see dark lows in terms of like dark shadows as well as uh, bl- uh, like high colored lights and high lights. It's, so, not the, it's not so much the film cameras, it's the film itself. Yes, you can't do it. But, uh, but these very advanced new digital cameras, they have incredible high dynamic range where you can see very bright lights as well as dark shadows at, on the same image with the same kind of um, op- um, uh, visual settings and everything. And uh, I love that this movie was made in Boston because it looks like it. And, and Boston's a beautiful place. It's it's really great architecture-wise and nature-wise. And... and um, we're from Boston, kid. Boston, kid. Yeah, and we love Massachusetts. And there's a, a uh, we have a bunch of weird names for the cities in in our state, and uh, some of them are here listed for this movie. So this movie was shot in Boston itself. I'm gonna do it with the Boston accent. So it was shot in Boston, Berlin, Easton, Marlboro, Natick, Wellesley, which is where our dad lives, Maynard, Waltham, which is where we grew up, and in Medfield, kid. Yeah. So actually, the exteriors of the movie, so that that beautiful. Thromby Estate, the giant red mansion that's a privately owned estate built in 1880. And the exact location of the house contractually cannot be disclosed by the filmmakers. So it's believed to be around Natick, which is just about like 15 miles west of downtown Boston. And then the interiors of the mansion, the beautiful interiors of this film, were shot at the Ames Mansion, which is a 20-room historic site located in Massachusetts Borderland State Park in Easton, Massachusetts. It was just a little south of the city. And no, then, no, hold on, let me interrupt. It's very common to shoot an interior that's different from the exterior of whatever the set is. That happens all the time. Yeah, and then the bedrooms in the in like Harlan's bedroom and his his study and everything, all the top floors in those rooms, those were built on sound stages. And Ransom's house is actually a 1950s modernist home in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Ransom. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, and also, yeah, they filmed the car chase scene on Moody Street where yeah, our father's, I, our father's I, business is Yeah, there. I recognize uh, there's a few shots of Moody Street mixed with, I think, I think there's some shots of Wellesley's um, yeah. town, like uh, where where that barbecue place is. Yeah. What's it called? Blue Ribbon. Yeah. There's some shot. There's a shot That's of Blue Newton. Ribbon. That's Newton. Yeah, what's well, on the Wellesley line. Yeah. yeah. It's actually, I remember when we were in theaters and we were watching the car chase scene, I was like, I was like, I That's feel, Waltham. I know that place. Is that Waltham? <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I want to go back to cinematography a little bit more. And the, the great thing about... I think that a cinematographer working on a film like this in with the director, it's probably so much fun, but also a massive challenge to have all these actors on screen. But what I think Johnson and Steve Yedlin did really effectively is they added so much, uh, so many layers to each shot where we have characters, like maybe you'll have five, six, seven characters in one shot and they're all in different locations of this room, but because they're in different areas and you can see their characters doing their own personal nuanced 
uh, mannerisms, you, you kind of watch every shot as its own composition, and you see what the characters are thinking and how they're all reacting to what's being said. Yeah, I mean, you got character actors that are experts. Like Michael Shannon is just a supporting actor in this, and he's one of the best actors working, and he, he adds so much to just his bit. Tony Collette is an unbelievable actor, and she like it's amazing to have this cast. And but I think obviously the star of the movie is Daniel Craig um, as Benoit Blanc, and I love this character. I can't wait to see the sequels. He, the Ryan Johnson just finished writing the second film, and they're in pre-production of it. And it's a big Netflix deal. What, they, what was it? Four hundred fifty million dollars for got? three movies. For, yeah. for two movies. For two the, movies. The second and third film. But actually, speaking of that, real quick, because you brought up Kenneth Branagh at the beginning of the film, who yeah. made the Orient, Murder on the Orient Express. He actually just got cast in Knives Out no too, way. and he's playing the the mystery detective. No, he's from, not. Yeah, so he's playing uh, Hercule yeah. Poirot. Yeah, Poirot. So he's the, he's the are detective. You serious? So it's going to be a mix up, a mashup of those two characters. So Benoit and Poirot solving a mystery together. That is amazing. And also they re they announced recently that Edward Norton and, and Dave Bautista are also going to be in the film as well. And I'm sure Dave Bautista will probably be a villain. I bet, because, or maybe think he's going to fight. Well, someone. think he's a villain. <laughs> and what's cool is. Him and Danny Craig were in um, one of the James Bond Inspector. Inspector together. He's a villain. That's great. That's amazing because um, Ryan Johnson was inspired by Perot when he wrote Benoit Blanc. He, he based it off of that character. And that character is the the famous Agatha Christie um, detective, basically like her version of Sherlock Holmes. And then Ryan Johnson used that as the basis for Benoit. That's that's amazing that they're yeah. going to be in the same movie so together. So cool. I can't that's, wait. That's it's, awesome. Like, screw the Avengers. I want to see this crossover. <laughs> but it's always nice to see Daniel Craig. I love, I love him as Bond. And I love the Bond movies. But it's always nice to see him not in a big action Bond movie. He's so talented. He actually hasn't even made that many movies. What's the one they did with Channing Tatum? Logan Lucky. Logan Lucky is amazing. Yeah. And he's hysterical and so good he's in it. He's so good in that. Yeah. And uh, speaking of, so Benoit Blanc, he's such a great character because obviously he has that, that great like southern drawl accent, which is over the top, but I love every second of it. But he's, he's also obsessed with the truth and he really knows how to manipulate the characters and try to get the information that he wants without them knowing that he's getting the information that he wants. You know what I mean? So I yeah, exactly. So the first time we see him is during the interrogations, right? And and uh, it goes from the detective interviewing each member of the Thromby family, and then played, yeah, played by Lakeith. Yeah, played by Lakeith. Well, what's the detective? Elliot. And so as Elliot is questioning the family, um, Benoit is sitting behind him on the piano. And he hits that key every time. Now, well, the first time I saw this movie, I thought he was hitting because you're suspicious, right? You're like, you're trying to, you know, it's a whodunit. You're like, oh, who's the who's the one lying? Who's who's like gonna be the the culprit of out of this family? And so you're suspicious of everyone. And so I thought that when he hit that piano key every time, he was signaling that he thinks that person is lying. Yeah, or like B, that's BS. Yeah, exactly. But what re, what he's really doing, and when Benoit Blanc hits the piano key, it's actually a signal to Detective Elliot. To ask that person what time they arrived at the house. Before we continue, I gotta let you know that Manscaped has just launched their brand new Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping from manscaped.com. And we really appreciate everyone who uses our coupon code. That's what helps us keep these sponsorships, helps keep the lights on for the show. Over 2 million men are currently using Manscaped products. We have everything. They're, they're lawnmower groomers, they're weed whackers, they're, they're men's wipes, which are fantastic, they're colognes, they're deodorizers, they're boxer briefs. Check out their performance packages, which has a bunch of different products consolidated into one bundle, and it's the best, I'm telling you. 
If you need to get a gift for the men in your life, you got to go to manscaped.com. And fellas, if you're not on this stuff, you got to get these products. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping year round at manscaped.com. And I love these scenes, these interrogation scenes, because we're meeting all the heirs, all the children, the 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 daughters, the sons, the the daughter-in-laws, and they all seem to like be totally full of shit. Everything they're saying, except for Linda, seems kind of the most genuine in a way. But they all they all have this air of superiority. They all claim to be self-made, highly successful people that didn't need anybody's help. When really they're all so dependent on Harlan and his wealth, even Linda, even though Linda's a successful person, she still, we learned later on, got a million dollar loan from Harlan. So they're all dependent on Harlan. And we eventually learned through their stories that they're not completely telling Benoit Blanc and the detectives at the time that they seem to all have some sort of motive to maybe take out take out Harlan or maybe all work together to take out Harlan, except for I would say Linda's the only one that doesn't really have motivation. Yeah, and so the most of them have a motivation, but the problem is that what ben, I think what Benoit understands is that these aren't the kind of people that would kill for retribution or revenge. You know what I mean? I don't think he, he sees that any of these people he's interrogating as capable of that. And so he's still, he's still trying to find out more um, because he thinks it doesn't make sense that one of them would kill, Rand, would kill Harlan because they're all so dependent on him, which is why he keeps searching for answers. And we eventually learn all the heirs and their supposed motivations that we believe would cause them to commit the murder of Harlan. So we have Walt, and Walt's motivation is that he wants to adapt Harlan's novels into film and TV. And he's trying to, at the party, we learn that he's trying to talk to Harlan about a book deal, and the guys from Netflix are calling him, but Harlan doesn't want any of his books to be turned into TV and film. And what Har- Walt doesn't understand that they're, they're Harlan's books, not their books. They're just Harlan's. Richard has motivation to poss- possibly kill Harlan because Harlan discovered that he's having an affair with someone against his daughter, and Richard's his son-in-law. Joni is Harlan's daughter-in-law, played by Tony Collette, and she's actually was married to his son, Neil, I think his name is, who passed away. And her motivation could be that her allowance got cut after he discovered that she was stealing from him. And then Ransom's motivation, we don't really know if he has one yet. We just know about that fight that occurred in the study during the party. Because since he wasn't there, we don't really under, we don't get an interrogation from him because he comes late to that too. And also... But he does reveal later yeah, on later that on it's we, because Harlan cut him off. Yeah, so eventually we learn Harlan, at the will reading and before that we learn that Harlan, Harlan cut him off. And then Linda seems the least suspicious to me because she has I don't see any motivation for her to kill Harlan. Yeah, she had she had nothing to gain from Harlan because she already built her business. So she didn't need him. And she seemed like she had the most of a connection with Harlan anyways. Yeah. And what I love about this interrogation scene too is is when the detectives and Blanca are questioning them at first and they're talking about the party, they all have their own perspective in their mind of how the party looked and how the party went. And Ryan Johnson does this really clever shot where every time they're recounting the events of the birthday party each one of them are holding the cake with Harlan and helping him blow out the candles. Instead, So we don't really even know who helps Harlan blow out the candles because they're all so self-centered. It was probably Marta. Probably Marta. Yeah, yeah. I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> and Marta actually is the only person out of the entire bunch who ended up benefiting from his death. She got the entire will was left to her. So that is suspicious. Too. Yeah, so that becomes like the biggest motive for him dying. Seeing Because like... If you put it in the perspective of someone from outside, it would be like, oh, she knew that he was leaving her everything, so then she killed him. So that she's the only person by 
halfway through the film that really has the only real motivation for him dying. And so you're saying if you don't believe that she accidentally mixed up the drugs? Yeah. Then you could see that, oh, she she benefited greatly. And whereas everyone else, him, his death was a big major problem for the, all of them. They all lost so much because of his death. So none of them truly wanted Harlan to die. Yeah, and something else about these characters and these brothers and sisters is, yes, they're very arrogant and self-centered, but their relationship with Martha, on the surface to them, they think that they're great to her and they think that she's part of the family in their eyes. But really, they it seems to be just because they treat her half decent in a way and they call her kiddo, that it absolves them from how they really treat her. Like they don't even know where she's from. They all give a different country in South America of where her family's from. One of them says Ecuador. One of them says, I think, Brazil. And Uruguay, one says Paraguay, Paraguay. Paraguay. So they don't even know where she's from. And it seems like whenever Richard is telling the story about how they try to get her over to talk about coming over across the country legally versus illegally, in, her, in his mind, she was smiling and having a great time. And so they just don't really treat Martha as well as they think they do and i think that's fully shown when the will is read and and martha gets all the money and, and the entire inheritance and they all turn on her instantly despite saying she was part of the family yeah there's a great contrast of privilege versus um you could say like disadvantageous or like disenfranchisement whereas the thrombies are very privileged and martha being the daughter of an immigrant very yet very much at a disadvantage in life and so the first sign of that is nobody actually knows where Marta's family's from because they don't care enough to actually listen to her. Um, they they keep saying that they were outvoted about having her at the funeral. Oh, yeah. <laughs> at, for, at first, it sounds like, oh, man, that must, that was nice that they voted for Because Linda Marta. was the first one yeah. to say it. But then it's three more people say it, and you're like, is, it, is any of them sincere about anything? Did anyone even vote for her to go to the funeral? And then um, when they're having that political argument, the, the brothers and the siblings, uh, Richard hands Marta the plate when she, he he's like trying to he defends her and says she's a hard work and then he like literally hands her the plate like she's the help and she's not she's yeah. a nurse and then um also the the thrombies beg her and then try to um threaten her into renouncing the will and then i think also meg she seems like she's uh, a, a a a smart young woman who seems to be like the only normal one in regards to how they view marta but then even she shows that that's um sign of um privilege when she calls Marta and asks what Marta's going to do. And Marta's like, I, I don't know. And then she's, she's like worried about school mo money for school. And then Marta says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. Like money's not a problem. I'll give you whatever you need. And then even Meg, she hangs up on her. Yeah, she doesn't even say thank you. Yeah, because she's like, she even, she showed her true colors as being part of that privileged group by being shocked that Marta is going to pay for her school. Struggling to accept the fact that her family's not going to be paying for her school. Marta will be paying for her school. But I think also in that moment, she's like, I'm okay. So whatever, Marta, hang up. As long as I'm okay, who cares what happens to them? No, I, don't, I, I disagree because the look at her face is like distraught because she she wouldn't have hung up on Marta and cut her off. True. But, she, and then she, they, they were all asking her to, yeah. to spy on, so basically I, be an inside person. So I think Meg showed herself to be part of the privileged group. But also, like, I love the dynamics between the, the families because, like, uh, politics is so touchy now. And, like, everything is a hot-button topic now. And Ryan Johnson shows that, but he doesn't take a side. He, like, he has Jaden, who's, like, the alt-right conservative, and then Meg, who's, like, the social justice warrior liberal. Like, two extremes. <laughs> I love when Ransom's yeah. like, how's the SJW degree? <laughs> <laughs> and same thing with the uh, their parents. Like, they're on opposite ends of the 
extreme sides of the spectrum. It's fun seeing people argue about these matters at on such extreme levels where it, it's like a representation of social media and how in Twitter and how it's, the division is so far, like no one can listen to the other person and it's just constant bickering and clashing. And speaking of social media, something that I think Ryan Johnson does so well in this film is accepting the digital world that we're living in. You know, most films we watch, most TV shows, you hardly see characters with smartphones in their hands or using them or calling anyone. When in reality, every day we're all consumed by our smartphones. We either have them in hand even when we're not using them. We're, they're always thinking about them. We're always about to use I'm them. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> but what Ryan Johnson does in this film so well is he constantly has smartphones everywhere. He's got them in people's hands when they're not even using them just while they're talking. Uh, Meg's holding a smartphone in her, an, an iPhone in her hand when she hugs Marta. She's not even on it. She just hugs her and still in her hand. And Jamie Lee Curtis uses her, her smartphone a lot. So a lot of the characters are using their smartphones, which a lot of people ignore. But I, I love the fact that Ryan Johnson uses that because he's adapting it to the modern world, which a lot of people don't want to do. I, I always watch these movies and we'll see like young adults or teenagers and like, where are their smartphones? Why yeah. are they in their hands? I, we watched something like last week and it was a bunch of young people in a scene. And I was like, I have not seen a single kid look at their phone in five minutes. What the hell is going on? <laughs> this, is to this is totally untrue. It's not real. So I, I just love that aspect of it. It's a great attention to detail. And also this, this whole movie has great attention to detail. And speaking of smartphones, the time is always correct in this movie, whether it's on a phone, on a wall, on a watch, in terms of the events of the film. And it's one of those little things that the prop department was very specific on, and, and Ryan Johnson really wanted to make sure they got right. So when it's their, their meeting for the will is at 10.30, Jamie Lee Curtis, Linda's phone, it says it's 10.16, and then midnight when, when uh, everyone looks at their watch. So next time you watch this, look at all the clocks, look at all the watches. They're always spot on for what's happening. Let's take a break now and head into intermission. We'll play some fun games. This intermission, as always, is brought to you by our friends at manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost for 20% off and free shipping. And if you're new to our intermissions and new to our show, we just have like to have some fun games. We play some movie trivia games, some guessing games, and we'll go back and forth with those. And so I will start Let's go. with our movie quote competition. So I'm going to say a movie quote. Anthony guesses it, and vice versa. And also, we have a movie quote from a fan that we haven't read yet, so we're going to play that game with them as well. So our fan, Tevin, will be part of this. So I'll go first. You think I'm crazy? Well, listen up. There's a storm coming like nothing you've ever take seen. Take shelter. And not one of you is prepared for it. Yes, take shelter. Hold on, you guys say like, There's, There's a storm, storm coming! coming! It ain't none, none of you is prepared! <laughs> It's a great performance from uh, Michael Shannon. I figured I'd keep it in the re relevance to the film. <laughs> if anyone's ever not seen Take Shelter, watch it ASAP. I also did a, a Michael Shannon one, but not. Who made the, uh, Jeff Nichols? Yeah. Yeah. Incredible director. They've made three movies together. <clears throat> okay, here's my quote. I need a father who's a role model, not some horny geek boy who's going to spray his shorts whenever I bring a girlfriend home from school. What a lame-o. <laughs> Someone should really just put him out of his misery. American Beauty. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's a the daughter. Great line. It's a great line. It's a great. You knew a movie right away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's a really good line. <laughs> I love that. It's really smart. It's a, Alan Ball. One, five Oscars, I think, right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. it was a big movie. If you think, of, if you look back, the Fight Club came out, and then American Beauty came out. Um, they were almost at the same time. I think within a year of each other, and they were both very much about a lot of the same things. Like as a a, a disillusioned man who's like completely lost hope in himself and like has lost his place in the world and is trying to figure out what the hell to do and completely transforms himself yeah very similar movies mm -hmm. 
All right, now let's read the movie quote from our fan, Tevin. I have not read this. He sent us an email. It's unopened. And so I'll say it, and we'll try to guess it. Let's go, Tevin. All right. You dare point your gun at me? Do you want a piece of me? I will tear you apart. Uh, I don't know. He's also from the UK. What is this? Uh, I can't think of anything specific. All right, let's look it up. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I don't know. Transformers either. Revenge of the Fallen. Spoken by Ironhide. I think it's because he's surrounded by so one of them surrounded it. by soldiers. Got it. That's got it. it. Is. Yeah. All right, cool. Thanks for the quote, Tevin. That was fun. Anyone else has quotes? Send them in. We'll yeah, do send us the next a DM. We'll, yeah, send us DMs on Instagram. We'll we'll use your quote. All right, let's move on to guess that movie release year. What year did the original Halloween come out? 1970. 1978. Oh, I was way, way off. off, bro. That was my worst one ever. Man, pathetic. <laughs> it's okay. You're one for two. <laughs> I did a I did a Daniel Craig one for this one. Okay. What year did Laura Croft Tomb Raider come out? Two thousand and two. Two thousand and one. Oh man. <laughs> Damn. That's the first thing we saw Daniel Craig in. He's got a great tan in that movie. He's yeah, he's very tan in that movie. <laughs> Angelina Jolie. Whew, my childhood crush. Mine was I remember a, when I was a kid in that in watching that movie, I was like, "Who is that lady?" <laughs> oh my god! Mine was always Sandra Bullock. She was my number one. When I saw Speed, I'm like, "Oh my yeah, god!" She's, I'm yeah. in love. She's a gorgeous. Lady. I've seen Miss Congeniality like three times. Not ashamed to admit it. This week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, movie pop quiz time. Let's go. In Clint Eastwood's film Unforgiven, what is the name of the British outlaw who is played by Richard Harris and is imprisoned by the sheriff? It's a it's a funny one like that, right? Yeah, it's it's an outlaw name. They're all kind of funny. I can't remember. I don't know. English Bob. English Bob. Oh. <laughs> Dude, I know that name better than oh. Clint Eastwood's character in that name. Like Bill Johnny, something like that. Bill Money. Wow, you really know it. Bill Money. <laughs> Damn, an English hey. Bob. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know, that's uh, Dumbledore, the first two Richard Dumbledore Harris. Movies. Yeah. Okay, here's my question. What was Michael Shannon's big breakout movie role? He plays a dad, right? I'm not giving you any hints at all. <laughs> <laughs> no baiting me like, Mom, did it come out in, uh, around? That's a horrible impression of me. <laughs> did it come out around? Well, uh, well don't, don't, don't baiting me, Jim. Don't bait me, Jim. Just say the movie or not. <laughs> <laughs> Can you define breakout? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll give you another hint. He was nominated for an Oscar. Uh, and I know I'm going to be upset when you tell me. I give up. Revolutionary Road. Oh, yeah. I forgot he I plays the, the older couple's um, deranged son. Yeah, man. You're right. Yeah, he, That came out, I believe, in 2007 or 2008. He was uh supporting actor nomination. He actually was dirt broke before he got that movie role. He had, like, no money to his name, and he was just struggling as an actor. And he got, he, he got uh, auditioned for that and booked it. And his life changed after that. I think for him, it's probably hard for a lot of people to see the talent that he has because he's like a very flat person kind of and like his mannerisms in a way. But like he's such a great character actor. And I, I think he's so underrated, Michael Shannon. I mean, yeah, he's uh, great. Yeah. He's, he's unbelievable. He's he's a fantastic actor. I also think that he has like a kind of a, a dominating persona. He's kind of like an intimidating person. He kind of look, he kind of feels like. Oh, you don't want to mess with that guy. He's got a huge head. Yeah. Looks like I he guess, has a huge head. I guess, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't seen him in person. He looks like he has a big head. Just saying. He's very tall, so he I could, could be a... wrong, but I'm, I'm, yeah. it looks like it's bigger than this desk. It's a weird thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we're going to uh, do a recommendation. We're going to 
give you guys movie recommendations. Now, it's going to be a movie we recommend that's free on streaming, either Amazon or Netflix. Um, and this is going to be an Amazon movie. It's uh, Reign of Fire with Christian Bale and Matthew McConaughey. It came out when we were kids. I think it was 2001. But it's like, it's dragons take like took over the world. And it was just a, a small band of survivors left. And Christian Bale leads this group of survivors. And Matthew McConaughey plays a rival soldier. And I, it's not the best movie in the world. But it's, it's if you like a, like a good action movie and if you like dragons, like, watch this movie. It's sick. You're actually wrong. It's 2002. 2002. Right. And oh it's epic. God. It's like the first time, like Matthew McConaughey, we always thought was like the rom-com guy. And obviously we saw him days confused and everything. But when you saw him in this movie, he had like a bald head. He had like a, a leather vest on and like this crazy like guitaral act. He's not like a death metal singer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's like classic, like I'm American. I'm going to shoot you with my guns. Yeah, Let's go. Yeah, Let's great. go, brother. It's just, I, this is my favorite Matthew McConaughey performance. He's totally badass in this movie. And it's it's a really fun movie. It's awesome. And it's like not that long. It's I think it's under two hours. And yeah. it's a great watch. It really is. Yeah, check it out, guys. And I th- Yeah, it's before he's before Christian was Batman. Yep. Yeah. Um. This was after right after American Psycho. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what also post-apocalyptic world. I don't know what their diet and fitness regimen is, but they're both ripped yeah, out of their minds gigantic. for no reason. Yeah. Just enormous. Like, but everyone's starving. <laughs> <laughs> Dragons took over the world, but you still ripped. They still got their P90X going on. <laughs> they like, they had stores of creatine. Hey, they know what's up. You're gonna be shirtless in a movie. You're gonna get ripped. Yeah, you gotta you're, you're leading. You gotta look a certain you're way. Leading actor the way it in is. an action movie, you have to be buff. That's the way that's it is. The, that's the way it is. Okay, now. We do a nice little fun fact on this day in film history. So today is June 3rd, and on this day, the movie Big premiered, starring Tom Hanks, June 3rd. That that movie's great. Yeah. That's so fun. Yeah. I love when he dances on the piano. Everyone does. I was you know, you know that there's a, an obscure scene I don't think anyone's seen of <laughs> Tom Hanks. Like what he does is he dances ever, on a piano. You ever seen this movie Large? I think it's called. <laughs> <laughs> I always think it's weird when uh when there's a movie of like a shift in age, like drastic, where like thirteen going on thirty, and you're having yeah. romantic relationships with an adult as like a child inside the, of a body, or the body swap. Yeah, ones. Like, yeah, yeah. Speaking of Jamie Lee Curtis in yeah. the in the, the the swap movie, it's yeah. like Freaky Friday. Freaky Friday. Yeah. It's just really weird, like the interactions that are going on with like a thirteen year old in an adult body with adults. Yeah. It's and then vice versa. There's and it's always PG because if they went rated R, it would be weird. Messed up. It would be super, <laughs> it would be like a 13 year old kid is now an adult male hanging out with women and he has a wife. Dude, that he would trash his life in yeah, a day. Yeah. His day his life would be over in yeah. less than a day. <laughs> that was rated R. It would not work out. Anyways, <laughs> do we have anything else going on in intermission? That's our intermission for now. Our pontification. Oh, hater of the week. I can almost, of the week. I almost yeah. forgot. So today's hater of the week is uh, a comment on TikTok. It's not any. It, the it's just username like a three three eight whatever blah blah a bunch of numbers, but it was a, a thanks a, for the specificity. Yeah, <laughs> it was like sixteen numbers. I'm not gonna say them all. <laughs> gonna bore our audience to death. And it was a, a clip on TikTok we posted about a quiet place. And it's I think I'm I'm the one speaking in the clip, talking about the aliens in a quiet place, and this guy commented. Every pontification this guy makes on movies shows a lack of the understanding. Every single one. He put a period after each one of those. And then I replied, every comment this guy show a lack of understanding of proper English. Every single one. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, you know, people are crazy. Of 2,000 videos, apparently we're wrong in every single one. I mean, that's a lot of I think we've gotten at least half of them right. At least half. 
We're in 98%. Can, can you stop pontificating over here? I can't help with my pontification. Stop, he Googled pontification before he wrote that sentence for oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Or he probably learned it that day. And then he sent like three other comments I didn't read. He obviously was freaking out. He's very he's very insecure and upset about his life. Because he probably lost it from my lack of response. He's just upset that we have a dope movie podcast and he doesn't. Oh, yeah. I'm going to pontificate all over this movie podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now that wraps our intermission. Let's get back into Knives Out. In terms of the contrast from Marta to the family, it's really illustrated in a, a funny and symbolic way by Ryan Johnson using this coffee mug, this little cute coffee mug, which originally was a prop. And it says, like, my house, my rules, whatever. My coffee. My coffee, my my coffee, my house, my rules, right? And it was actually just a random prop that the prop master made. It had no significance to the story. But Ryan Johnson, when they were filming the last scene in the last scene obviously marta wins in the end and the family loses everything and she owns the house now and she owns the entire um harlan thromby estate now and she's standing on top of the house looking down at the family which is actually a complete reversal of how we first see marta when she's standing on the ground looking up at the family at the porch so the roles are reversed and at the, and by the end the family is glaring at marta because she won she took everything from them I wouldn't even say it like she won. She, yeah. she, it's yeah. not like she won a game. It's, it's the same thing as go. It's like she's not playing to win. She just wins because she's not trying to manipulate or or take anyone down, which is actually a, a metaphor for the entire fa- uh, story with her plot. And the family looks up at her, and she's and Marta takes a sip from the coffee mug, and uh, you, and they reveal the, this part of the coffee mug that says, my house. And it's a really great ending to show that she she – was the only good moral character in the entire Thromby um, ecosystem. And she deserved the house. No one in that family deserved the estate. No one deserved the money. No one really loved Harlan, except I, you could say Har- Linda loved him. Uh, and you could say the other kids, they, they loved him to an extent, but they were more in love with what they got from him. And then when that was gone, it revealed their true colors. Whereas Marta... She was a great friend and truly did love and care for Harlan and didn't want anything from him. And so she's the one who deserved to win. Before we continue, I have to tell you all about MoviePosters.com. It's that time on the episode. MoviePosters.com is the number one place to get your posters online today. Don't go to Amazon. I know it's free shipping, but it's not even close to the quality of MoviePosters.com. If you're checking out our set on YouTube, you will see that it is decked out with these posters. They just sent us a few fresh ones. We got Kill Bill, Alien. I got Jaws and Blade Runner behind me. Use our promo code Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com and check out every single poster they have. They have all sorts of framing, backlights. They have every size imaginable and pretty much every movie ever made. MoviePosters.com. Again, use our coupon code Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com. Yeah, he paid her to be his nurse, but eventually he was paid her to be a friend to him. Because, you know, when I'm sure a lot of people will experience it or have experienced if they're listening. When they get older in age, they start to become more lonely. And those people who are related to your family members, they kind of become more distant because they're too focused on themselves unless you have something to offer. And I love the mug because it's the second shot of the movie is the mug. Yeah. The close-up of the mug, you're like, it's a the opening is beautiful of the house with the dogs walking in slow motion with the fog and it's silhouetted with the tree branch. But then it's like a cut to uh, a silly-looking corny mug, which gets brought up to his study, and that's how Fran discovers that Harlan's dead. But I think that mug tells you so much immediately about this character of Harlan. Obviously, we learn... That he's very intelligent, he's articulate, 
He's well-mannered. He's, he's polite. He's clever. But it, I think this mug signifies that he's sick of everyone, like, leeching off of him. He's sick of no one else really doing anything for themselves and squandering around him and, and being completely dependent on what he gives them or or none of them. He constantly says that he wants them to build something for themselves. Like, he relieves Walt of the publishing duty. He's like, now I'll let you build something for yourselves. I've been I've done you a great disservice. And obviously, Linda's built something for herself, but also with a loan of a million dollars. So I think that the mug is symbolic of Harlan's character and his motivations of eventually cleaning house, he tells Marta. He's like, I got a clean house. And that's when we learn the great flashback with Marla. Well, another great... Marta. Marta what did I say? Marla. Oh, sorry. <laughs> another great example of the dynamic between Martha and Harlan versus his family and, and himself is they're all fighting and bickering and screaming in one of those scenes. I can't remember if it's the Will reading or another scene where they're fighting. And then Ryan Johnson just cuts to this very peaceful moment of Martha and Harlan, and he's she's just doing work, and he's just sitting there thinking and talking about cutting them off. And it's, it's a great contrast of the two different worlds that Harlan has, one that's peaceful and full of love with Martha, and one that's full of chaos and demandingness from his family. Well, yeah, and Ransom points that out at the end of the movie when he, he says that, the will is their birthright. Like they're they're entitled to it because of who they are, meaning that they didn't they didn't care about Harlan. They didn't and sh they didn't earn it. She earned it. She earned everything that Harlan gave to her. And Harlan, I think that his cutting off of ransom is the worst. Is the biggest sign of him feeling disillusioned from his family because ransom has never done anything for him, really. And hes you could say he's the most selfish character of all the family. And I don't know how Ryan Johnson got Captain America to be in his movie, but he, he managed to snag him through, during, like, what, a two-week period where he wasn't making a Marvel movie? <laughs> <laughs> well, what I love about uh, Chris Evans in this movie is it's like after Captain America and he came to play assholes again. Yeah. Because he was always kind of like a douchey character. Like yeah. he's in like not like another Fantastic movie. Four. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he was great as the douchey and then he's Captain America and super honorable. Then he's back to being douches again. One of the one of my favorite scenes in the comedy is not another team movie when we see his character and he's the high school jock and he walks into the school <laughs> like super confident and, and like smug and smiling. And then he walks over to a photo of himself and it's like it's the same outfit. <laughs> and he's like, he nods, smiling at it. And then he walks over to another wall, and it's a photo of him looking at the photo of himself <laughs> taken from the back. And he smiles and nods Same to outfit, too. <laughs> he's great at it. He's great at playing assholes. Yeah. And it must be a Boston thing. It has to be. But I think he took this movie role because he's the bad guy. And you can kind of tell, in a, not for this movie in particular because there's it's a star-studded cast, but if, if a really big actor is playing some role that seems kind of insignificant in a movie— uh, generally, they're gonna be and they're gonna end up being the villain in the movie. That's or it's what, a juicy role. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's because the villains are often juicier roles, and I think that's why he chose this movie for. I think this was a follow up to Endgame, right? This yeah, movie? this is 2019. Yeah, so I think that he was like, oh, I definitely want to be the villain in this great, great, um, well written script. And I've been playing the nicest guy in the world for for ten years. Yeah, yeah exactly. And he, the thing with this with this character is, uh, Ryan Johnson is so smart he actually left a bunch of clues for us um telling us that ransom did it throughout the movie oh there's tons of foreshadowing yeah so first of all the the, uh, the first obvious one is when harlan is talking to marta after when she's setting up the go board um and he's talking about the family and then he talks then he mentions ransom he starts talking about ransom what what ryan johnson does is he takes the camera and he tracks it across harlan 
and it ends and it finishes it centers on the knife that uh, Harlan will use to kill himself saying that and that's literally saying Ransom is going to be the killer in this movie. Yeah, and that line he says is, there's so much of me in that kid, confident, stupid, protected, playing life like a game without consequences until you, until you can't tell the difference between a stage prop and a real knife, which is foreshadowed for later on. Exactly. And one of my one of the funniest parts of, of dialogue in the movie is um, during the interrogations, um, it's Linda and what's Tony Collette's character name? Uh, Joni. Joni. Um, Joni first says when they know when they hear who Benoit Blanc is, she's like, "I read a tweet about a New Yorker article about you," <laughs> which is I think is so funny. And then Linda says, "I read your piece in the New Yorker. It was delightful." <laughs> but the thing with that is, when Marta is in Ransom's home, on his coffee table are a bunch of New Yorkers. So that's saying that uh, obviously Ransom has to be the one that reached out to Benoit because he read the the New Yorker article because there are a bunch of New Yorker magazines on his on his coffee table. So he's the one who sent Benoit the money. And also, who's the only part of, member of the family who didn't get interrogated by Benoit or the detectives and lieutenant? Yeah. It's it's, it's Ransom. Ransom. He never gets investigated. Yeah. And also when Ransom when Marta is at Ransom's house, um in the background there are a bunch of brown uh glass jugs, like big glass jugs in the background. I think it's in his kitchen. But and they're stacked in a row, but there's a space because one's missing and one's gone. And so that's implying that he used that, filled it up with gasoline to burn down the medical examiner's office. And so the, all these clues are sprinkled uh, referring to Ransom, and it uh, no one saw it the first time. But if you watch repeat viewings, it's really fun to see them. One of my favorite scenes is when we actually see like the real Harlan. He's with... Is um, it when he dances on the tie? <laughs> when he's with Martha upstairs after the birthday party, and this is when Martha is having her flashback from when she's about to be investigated by by Blanc, and he flips the coin up in the air, and we what we find out is no time passes at all because she's running through this all in her head, but we see what happened really to Harlan, and it's a great scene because we get to see a, a different side of Harlan than when he's downstairs with everybody trying to please what they want or trying to or he ends up like cutting the core on them all. And he seems very genuine and, and fun and playful. And they have this great relationship. And and that's when we find out that Martha accidentally, well, she thinks she accidentally gave him 100 milligrams of morphine, which is a very emotional scene. And at this point, we were wondering who killed him. And then to find out that Martha's the one that actually accidentally technically overdoses him to kill him. We, so we think. It's terrible to find out. And the, the funniest thing about it is right before it happens and they and she realizes it, Harlan says that I'm not afraid of death. And he's just going on his rants and tangents. It's kind of like me off outside of the podcast. And <laughs> instead of being concerned about dying in 10 minutes, he's more concerned about writing notes for an idea of how to kill somebody for a book idea in, in less than 10 minutes. And he's like, oh, so if, if you did this to somebody, how many minutes would it be until they did? This is a great idea for somebody who dies in a book. And it's a great example for how quickly – and then – and then there's another great shot where he doesn't want anything to happen to Martha because obviously she's going to get caught and she's going to have responsibility and something's going to happen to her mother. She's going to be deported and he doesn't want that to happen because he cares about Martha more than anybody in the world, obviously. And earlier in the film, Walt says a few times or, or Walt's talking about the books. He gets asked about the the plots or whatever. And he says uh, he says that the when he writes the books, he says the plots come fully formed into his mind just like that. And then you see, like, Harlan, like, closes his eyes for a few seconds, and the plot for the rest of the film for what he wants Martha to do 
comes into his mind fully formed in an instant. And that's how he's able to navigate Marta through this very complex situation with all these moving parts and family members to get her out of it. That's an awesome point. I didn't think of that. Yeah, because otherwise it's kind of like questionable, like, oh, how do you figure that out so quickly? Ryan Johnson but, prepares you for that. Yeah, so he sets it up saying only like this person's capable of that. So that totally makes sense. And he's such a good mystery writer that he's able to come up with this, this incredible plan for Marta to, to sneak outside and, and to pretend to be him with his own clothes on, to, to turn after the elephant or whatever it is and not before, and, and sneak up the wall and, and do all these complex things to get her out of it. It's, it's amazing. And the thing is, it's still she's still very suspicious, but the thing that keeps her safe, so we think, is that she's incapable of lying without vomiting, and it makes her sick to, to lie. And Benoit Blanc, even though he's he seems like he's very intelligent and very perceptive and great with conversation, he seems to be kind of clueless in ways. He seems to be like an awful detective. And Marta even says, you know, you make a lousy detective. And he's like, well, you make a lousy murderer. And <laughs> But the thing is, Ryan Johnson makes us think that. We think he doesn't know what's going on because it gets to the point where it's like, how does he not suspect Marta at all? You know what I mean? And it gets to the point where it's like, what is going on with Benoit? And then he reveals at the end of the film, when Marta asks, when Marta asks how he knew that something was fishy about the whole thing, and that she was involved, and that she was involved, he points to her shoe, and sees, and she sees uh, there's a drop of blood, like a very tiny drop of blood on her shoe, which Ryan Johnson revealed at, at the end of the, the first act. He shows it when she sits on the couch with yeah, her mother, with her mother, yeah. Um, and so that's and you can if you look back and watch the movie again. When Benoit Blanc first meets Marta, he looks down at her shoe for, on the yeah out in the porch for like two seconds, but he pretends like not he doesn't react to it. So you can see that he took in the information, and Daniel Craig's great at such a great actor, he hit it. And so, in all, even though he seemed clueless, he was kind of playing it that way to help Marta help him discover what really happened. Yeah, so he knew that Marta was involved somehow. She he knew that she was in the room. When Harlan slit his throat, and we obviously know that he deduced that he knew that Harlan slit his own throat. Yeah. We all know that he knew he knew that Martha was there, but he was more curious about who hired him, why they hired him. If this was such a clear cut case of suicide, all the evidence points to a suicide, and that means that there must be a larger mystery about, and something is afoot that is even more nefarious, and that means that it's probably a murder case somehow. He just has to figure out how it is a murder. Yeah, exactly. So, like I said early in the podcast like he he's more concerned about what was the motivation to harlan killing himself why did he do that and ransom would have gotten away with it all if he had not killed fran ironically and basically what he did to cause harlan's death is after he after harlan told him that he was getting cut out of the will and that he was giving everything to martha he came up with that plan where he switched the labels of martha's morphine and with the other prescription, the medication, the other yeah. medication that um, she gives to Harlan on a nightly basis, she's only supposed to give him three milligrams of morphine to have fun and like you want to do drugs. And then the 100 milligrams is supposed to be his real medication, which is non-lethal. He switches the labels. But because we learn that Martha is such a good nurse, she's such a caring person, and she's so well qualified that even though Ransom switched the labels, she still gave the correct dosage because she's of the correct medication. Of the correct medications yeah. because she knows that there's that slight change in viscosity and in the minor change in hue or color or whatever, where she didn't even have to look at the labels. So 
ironically, Harlan slit his throat when he was perfectly fine. He was perfectly healthy. But because they thought that she accidentally killed him, he wanted to help her get away with it somehow, get loose clean of that. Get cut. Uh, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> that was the flaw in Ransom's plan, not understanding. He didn't anticipate that Harlan would do so much to try and help uh, Mark to get away with it. Well, yeah, because he never intended for Harlan to slit his throat. The, the intention was for him to overdose. Overdose, yeah. And it'd be Martha's fault. Yeah, exactly. And so the fact that Harlan, since he cared so much about Marta, um, Ransom underestimated the lengths to which Harlan would go to protect Marta. And also at the end, Benoit Blanc says that not only can he can she outbeat you and go, she outplayed you by having a kind heart. And that's what saved Marta was because he would have still gotten away with it if Marta didn't call an ambulance to try to save Fran because what gets him to confess to the murders is he, he Ransom's obviously obviously a smart guy. He knows that if Fran's dead, that there's no evidence tying him besides a couple people's words. With a good lawyer, he's gonna get off of it with no problem. But because Martha's so smart, she's clever and tricks Ransom and everyone else into thinking that Fran survives, which means that she's gonna be able to say that Hugh did this to everybody else and that Ransom did this. But because and and then that causes him to confess to the murders. And he's like, you know what? Whatever. It doesn't matter anyways. Yeah, he's like, she's she survived. So yeah, so what if I tried to kill her? And then he tries to kill her with the well, knife. first she throws up all over oh, yeah. his face. Yeah. He's like, what the <laughs> shit? <laughs> and then um, uh, Noah Sagan's character, he's like, that means she's lying. That means she's lying. And then that fake knife, you don't know the difference between a prop and a real knife, comes into play later on when he tries to kill Martha with one last move before he goes to prison. That got me when I first saw it. I thought she was dead. I was man. like, oh, my God. I and thought then, she was dead. And then when he pulls it out and it's just a retractable knife, it's so – it's. I was dying laughing. It was it's so, so funny. It was such a great ending. Such a great moment. So, so brilliant. It's it's fantastic. And then, like you said, it it goes back to Harlan saying, my kids couldn't even tell a difference between a fake knife or a real knife. It's so smart, the writing in this movie. And not only is the script super smart, but all the characters are really clever and smart. I mean, even the point where Fran is blackmailing Ransom because she discovers that Ransom is the one that messed with the medication after she saw him do it. And that's why... Ransom skipped the funeral to switch up the medication labels and to and but Fran noticed that and she blackmails him. I think it's for money with that photocopy of the tox report revealing that Harlan had perfectly fine blood. There was no overdose of morphine. But then Ransom turns that around, tries to kill Fran and set her up, and then uses that same photocopy, a portion of it, to blackmail Martha into someone thinking that Martha did it. Yeah. Or Martha thinking that into Martha thinking that someone knows that she did it. Yeah, exactly. And then another great scene about this back and forth between Martha and Ransom is when the will's read and obviously everyone's freaking out on Martha and they're chasing her outside of the house. And one of my favorite parts of cinematography of this movie is the whole film is obviously on very steady camera and and, and tilts and, and zooms and everything. But then Ryan Johnson and Steve Yetlin take the camera handheld when they go outside when Martha's trying to leave the house after the will reading. It's really well, it's great. not just that. It starts static. Yeah, start, yeah. And then when the scene erupts and gets chaotic, then they take it off the whatever tripod or, or stabilizer it was on, and then it gets super shaky, which makes it feel – it really makes you feel the emotions that Martha's feeling. Yeah, you feel that chaos. It's then a great shot. And then Ransom basically rescues him, her and takes her to that restaurant. There's two things about this scene that next time you watch it, you'll notice – immediately is he gets that big bowl and is filling her up with beans and sausages because he knows she's going to puke if she lies and that's how he interrogates her to get all of the information that she knows about harlan's death and when he's sitting there listening to her and all the beers are from him, he has that moment where he's like huh 
And it's in that moment that he realizes that he lost and he has to try to figure out a new plan to save himself. And that's when he comes up with the part with Fran. Yeah, hence him not understanding that Harlan would ever think to kill himself before the the, morph the morphine would kill him. So a lot of clever characters are doing a lot yeah. of very clever things. And obviously the best one comes out on top, Martha. Yeah. And there's one more thing about the film that I, I want to talk about that's so fun is, is the baseball. And so if you follow this baseball, it's kind of being thrown around. It starts off on Harlan's desk and it's, it's thrown outside and Benoit is playing with, with the dogs. And at the point of the baseball is it helps Linda discover the secret letter that Harlan wrote to her with the invisible ink that she otherwise would have never discovered on his desk, which reveals that the affair that Richard's having. So even though Linda isn't part of the estate, she still gets a happy ending somewhat for her life where she gets to learn, well, not happy ending, but uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, she gets to learn the truth about her, her life where her husband's having an affair. And if Richard never throws that baseball outside the window when he finds that letter, the dogs never would have had it. Benoit never would have had it. And then Linda never would have found the baseball in the dog's mouth at the at the scene where where Martha's telling them and Benoit tells them the truth. She takes the baseball and puts it on Harlan's desk, and that's where she finds the letter with the invisible ink. Ah. So she never would have discovered that letter if Richard didn't throw the ball out the window. So Richard was his own demise. Wow. Very cool. Let's do some superlatives, man. Let's go. Who's your MVP? MVP, I'm giving it to Steve Yadlin, cinematographer extraordinaire. It is a beautiful movie. Every every shot of it is exceptional, very creative. One of the best-looking films I've seen in years. And, I mean, I love I mean, Ryan Johnson's script and directing is fantastic and is great in this movie. But I think I just got to give it to him. I give it to Anna DeArmas. She just carries this movie, even though Daniel Craig is great. She's uh, the really, the heartbeat of the movie. So I give her the MVP for sure. Best scene. The final scene of Benoit revealing the truth to everybody. Yeah, it's, me too. Especially when Ransom attacks Marta with the fake knife. It's a great, great yeah. scene. Best shot. Opening shot of the Thromby estate. I talked about it earlier. The beautiful shot where we have the leaves and the hill going up and the tree is uh, perfectly surrounding the house. And there's like this beautiful fog and it's like overcast and the dogs are running in slow motion and... And that's where Nathan, John Nathan Johnson's score is so good in this movie. I can't believe I forgot to talk about that. It's actually Ryan Johnson's cousin. Mm. He did Looper. Obviously, I don't think they would let him do uh, The Last Jedi. Yeah, I mean, John's going to do Jedi. Yeah, So, um, but he has an amazing score. So shout out to Nathan Johnson on this. And I think that's the, the best shot of the movie. My favorite shot is after, Har after Marta watches Harlan slit his throat. And she goes back on the steps. And then she starts crying. And then Ryan Johnson does a close-up like right on her face, which is... Um, very natural lighting and it's unflattering lighting, not something you typically see in a movie. And it's, I think it's a really vulnerable shot and really makes you connect to the character. I think that's the best shot of the movie. Best actor. Anna DeArmas. She is so good in this movie. Like you said, this was like her big, big role that made her like a household name. Obviously probably got her bond with, you know, being homies with Danny C, but she is just, crying so much in this movie that takes so much talent to be able to cry on command like that at the right moments like it's that like the scene with harlan when someone where joni's knocking on the door it's a it's a long take where she's not crying we see harlan go to the door and then we pan down and she's crying so it's just it, like bawling her eyes out it's it's incredible talent and yeah. armis yeah likewise and armis best actor Best line. I'm actually going to... Can I recite this line? It's a few lines. It's Benoit Blanc <laughs> talking about the donuts. 
I spoke in the car about the hole at the center of this donut, and yes, what you and Harlan did that fateful night seems at first glance to fill that hole perfectly. A donut hole in the donut's hole, but we must look a little closer. And when we do, we see that the donut hole has a hole in its center. And it's not a donut hole at all, but a smaller donut with its own hole. And our donut is not a hole at all. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Nice job. Thanks, man. Good job. (laughs) You could have been like a a D-list actor if you really tried. D-list? What's that, like daytime TV? Yeah, soap opera. (laughs) My best line is, I read a tweet about a New Yorker article about you. It's pretty funny. That's yeah, funny. This movie's hysterical. There's a ton of great funny beats and moments. And then obviously most likely to get their own movies, Benoit Blanc, because he's getting his two of two of his own movies. For sure. I would like to see him get involved in like super powerful people, like maybe pol- politics or something, or like royalty or something. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, I bet there's royalty involved. Because Sherlock Holmes gets involved with royalty a bunch of times. I it's pro- I bet it's abroad. I think where they sh- do they do they release where they're filming it yet? No. I bet it's in Europe. It's all American actors. Yeah, but I mean we have the Perot is a, a French detective. True that. True that. True that, kid. What's your most underrated aspect of this movie? I don't think there is. I think everything's I, everything about it is phenomenal. The acting, script writing, cinematography, editing, music, it's it's a perfect film. I'd I'd say the most underrated aspect is the editing. Or, I, I get, or, or okay, especially yeah. the first think, 30 yeah. minutes. Underrated, yeah. Because there's so much flashbacks and flash forwards and so many scenes happening within a matter of minutes, and I think that the editor did a fantastic job translating that very dense first 30 minutes of the movie. And that could probably relate to the pacing is phenomenal, too. Yeah. Want to do some fun facts? Let's do some trivia fun facts on Knives Out. In that funny scene where Ransom, Chris Evans' character, tells the family at the tells the family to eat shit over and over and over again. He's like, eat shit, eat shit, you eat shit. He was originally supposed to tell them F you, uh, but they wanted to keep it a PG-13 movie, and you can't say the F-bomb uh, more than once in a PG-13 movie. So uh, Chris Evans came up with the idea of, like, what if I just tell them to all eat shit? And then they went with it. The portrait of Harlan Thrombey is actually digitally added in post-production. It wasn't finished until—the actual painting of Harlan wasn't finished until after filming had wrapped. So every scene where the portrait is shown, it's a visual effects shot. And also, but at the and also throughout the entire film, Harlan's portrait has like a stern look on his face. And at the end of the film, after Martha gets his entire inheritance and the mystery is solved, he has a smirk on his face. Daniel Craig enjoyed working with Anna de Armas so much that he actually chose her to star as the new Bond girl in No Time to Die. While shooting the interrogation scene with Linda Jamie Lee Curtis's character, she wears big glasses in this movie, and glasses are always a problem with the reflection in terms of being able to see the actual film crew in reflections. And so what the cinematographer did was he disguised all of the lights to in the shape of windows, so it looks as though the, what you're seeing in the reflection of her glasses are actually windows, but in fact they're lights disguised. The board game that Harlan Thrombey and Martha are playing is called Go. Go is an abstract strategy board game for two players in which the aim is to surround more territory than the opponent. The game was invented in China more than 2,500 years ago. Jaden Martell's character, that preppy grandson who's always on his phone, he's a character that was inspired by the online trolls who voiced criticisms over his film Star Wars The Last Jedi. Ryan Johnson's cousins actually all worked on this movie. His cousin Nathan Johnson composed the score. His cousin Mark Johnson did the title credits. 
and his cousin Zach Johnson painted all the portraits of the cast that um, show on the end credits. The Thrombies are all named after 1970s rock stars. Richard and Linda are Richard Thompson and Linda Thompson. Joni is Joni Mitchell. Neil is Neil Young. And Walt and Donna are Walter Becker and Donald Fagan of Steely Dan. Except Ransom, who is named after a character from C.S. From C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. All right, that wraps our episode on Knives Out. We really hope you enjoyed this one, everybody. Make sure to subscribe on YouTube if you're watching. If you're listening, follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening. And make sure to leave those five-star reviews. We love reading them. Thank you so much for tuning in. Become a patron today. And we'll see you next time. Take care, everyone.